So welcome to the Truth Lover webinar, Empowering Enlightened Humanity. This is a presentation of Love and Truth Party. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating movement, a community of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating and celebrating the true nature of the human being. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unitive consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this place as uh, new earth ninjas. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to receive the love and care in these and within the happiness hacks and other resources on our website, loveandtruthparty.org to enjoy the original media content and then simply to pay it forward in a giant social experiment and exploration of what it is to be the change. And today on our third Truth Lover um, webinar and podcast, I'm really delighted to be joined by Charles Eisenstein, our special guest. Charles is a world-renowned speaker and author. His uh, most well-known books are The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Um, Charles was recently a guest on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday, so we're in esteemed company, and I'm appreciative that he's taking the time today to appear on our humble offering of the Truth Level webinar. Charles, it's really great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Will. Actually, the uh, Super Soul Sunday was warm up for this one. Right, got it. Thank yeah. you. Sort of ascending yeah. to the real big stuff. I appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> it was really that's why i'm not that nervous right now because i've kind of gone through that a little bit right yeah the whole peak has been had and now you can just relax into our session today it was um just to, to frame our conversation we have this title of conspiracy and um just before we we, we dive into that i was really amused one of those sort of cosmic jokes when I saw one of the clips from the Oprah Winfrey show and you were pointing out that maybe starting a movement isn't a good idea and uh, it's sort of one of the naive and, and idealistic aspects of Love and Truth Party is to see if it's possible to start a movement. So I thought perfect one of our first guests is uh, questioning the very um, lightly held uh, assumption about Love and Truth Party. And the topic of conspiracy like what what this is this is uh, one word um we've had a bit of a conversation about it previously w what are we talking about when we're saying conspiracy well i thought you were going to tell me what you meant by conspiracy and well for, maybe for, we're talking about the idea that the uh, horrible things that are happening in the world are the result of a small group of conspirators or people who are um, in the know and invisible to our current way of seeing power that are operating in the background and they're kind of pulling the strings and, and, and the world doesn't work the way that we think it does. It's actually these people behind the scenes who are controlling everything. I mean, that's probably what most people mean by conspiracy. Yeah, conspiracy theory would be the sort of full... Yeah title and what comes to mind is uh, a Noam Chomsky I think many years back sort of questioned this very interesting languaging of conspiracy theory which really is just to say people planning something 
um, the, the, the idea that people are planning something in secret, which seems actually fairly straightforward that this would be happening a great deal. So on the one hand, it seems that there's, there's truth to uh, conspiracy theories. We would assume it has to be. And yet I feel that you're pointing to something uh, to, really, to really sort of question some of the thinking around this view that there is a group of people that are in control or that are, that are running the show. Yeah, the, it only becomes a controversy. I mean, of course, there's people making secret plans. But the question is, is that how the world works? Is there a level of explanation for current events that depends on the theory that there are a group of conspirators behind the scenes? Because <laughs> certainly, like, I mean, Stella and I have a conspiracy to to have Santa come on Christmas Eve for Carrie, you know, I mean, something like that. Right? <laughs> but we're not, we're not questioning whether that exists. We're, we're asking, is there a, I don't know. I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to go too much into the definition of it, but maybe you can tell me what you think. I mean, cause here you are wanting to uh, build a movement and change the world. The movement thing. It's not that I don't think that, movements are important it's that we don't necessarily know how to start a movement and maybe a better approach is to listen for the movement that's already happening and join that movement and i think love and truth is actually part of a very deep movement that's taking shape today so maybe yeah like you don't have to think of yourself as okay the world is in bad shape and organizations aren't enough. We've got to start a movement, man. Then we're going to do a really big thing. Like that is an organic process beyond ourselves. And we can align with the movements that are, that are being born today. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a paradox of this inquiry, which is a, a sort of deep recognition of the all is wellness and a movement to, to, to make it better somehow to contribute to that more beautiful world. And, we hope certainly that love and truth party is an expression of something that's already happening. And so there's no yeah. illusion that we're really changing the world though, of course, in every action and every step that we take. So the, the hope is that we might be able to set up a, a structure that can become an expression, become a tool, a, a mechanism that people can use the consciousness, if you like, can use to express what wants to emerge that what's already unfolding. Um, so this would be a very different view of the world, quite contrary to the idea that our fundamental problem is, you know, 50 very powerful, uh, generally they're men in the, in, in the view, who are working in the shadows to um, manipulate population or the banking system or whatever. And beyond the partiality of those, of those truths, I'm hearing like something really quite more fundamental being pointed to in terms of, or questioned in terms of how the world does work, how culture forms, how movements happen, how change occurs. Yeah. It often, okay, so yeah, the 50 men or whatever who are killing off the holistic doctors who are researching vaccine damage and alternative cancer therapies, for example, like these you know, holistic doctors keep dying under suspicious circumstances. So the mind immediately goes to, well, some shadowy group that is behind the pharmaceutical industrial complex is probably killing them off, right? Or you can look into chemtrails or, um, 
you know, 9-11 or weather modification programs, or you can go as far as you want, moon landing conspiracy theories, flat earth advocates. I mean, and basically sometimes, and I'm, I'll just say sometimes things look like there is an organizing intelligence coordinating events. And we think in our worldview that if there is any kind of coordination or intelligence to a system, that it must have been designed that way. A new understanding, which is probably also very ancient, says that systems, organizations, uh, societies are themselves organisms that have their own intelligence. And in fact, the world is an organism. The cosmos is an organism that has its own intelligence. If you are in a Newtonian mind frame, which says that the world out there is a bunch of randomly colliding forces and masses, then if there is any design, it must have been imposed by an external designer. So that's why religious people who are actually unconsciously adherents of Newtonian mechanics, they think that there must be God because otherwise the world would just be a random jumble of stuff. It wouldn't be, wouldn't have life. Mm -hmm. So the equivalent of the intelligent design belief applied to politics, societies, economies, and so forth says that, wow, this, this stuff can't just all be random because it seems like there is a purpose and in fact, a sinister purpose or a sinister intelligence behind this thing. So let's find the imposer of this intelligence. Let's find the bad guys back there. That way of thinking is, it, there's a perverse comfort in that way of thinking because if that is the explanation for why inequality of wealth is, is increasing or why whatever, whatever issue you wanna take, if that's an explanation, then in theory, we know what to do about it. All you got to do is expose those guys and defeat them, kill them, lock them up, shame them publicly. Like we know what to do. But if the most powerful people in the world are in fact puppets of a system, not puppets of the draconian ETs who are beaming mind control technology through microwave towers, but they're puppets instead of a system, an emergent embedded intelligence, then we don't know what to do. There's nobody to fight. What do you do then? Then you come to, well, we got to create a movement or something. We have to somehow operate on the level of the inherent intelligence of a system and sense into what is possible. What is the next evolutionary movement of that system? And how can I align with that? And that's not a way of thinking or a way of being that's very familiar to us in our society, where the first action is to listen. Hmm. Be humble. Hmm. And is there not also to, to, to speak to a, a view that would be that we're deconstructing to an extent a value in, for example, inquiring into uh, 
discrepancies between, let's take one of the, the few uh, popular conspiracy theories that you pointed to, such as 9-11. So it seems quite clear that there's a discrepancy between the report and some of what happened, like that people can see on the internet and so on. So just yeah. to be in the inquiry and openness of, well, that's interesting. There's something that happened and the official explanation seems to not really account for it fully. And there seems to be a quite interesting lack of interest in a lot of the media around that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there are conspiracies. 9-11, um, there's some stuff that really doesn't add up in the official explanation, even more so the Kennedy assassination. Like, that's just crazy, you know, how, how it's, when you really look into it, it seems pretty obvious that there was something going on there. Mm -hmm. But I had an interesting conversation with my father, who's, you know, a 60s liberal. <clears throat> he was devastated when Kennedy was shot. And one day I kind of laid out some, some of the data points. I'm like, you know, Dad, like two weeks before the assassination in Dallas, there was an attempt in Chicago that was busted. And the car used by the, by the potential assassins was registered to Lee Harvey Oswald. And <clears throat> like just this one data point out of many, many. And he's like, you know, if that's true, I just don't want to know about it. And essentially he was saying, if that's true, then so much else that I thought was true about the world isn't true anymore. And like his whole worldview would unravel. So I think that, that data points like that, that violently contradict <clears throat> the world and the identity that people have, they're going to be pushed out. It's going to sound like craziness. But see, so then there, let me get into weird territory though, because the more you investigate any conspiracy theory, the more the evidence that you come across seems to validate the theory. It's partly just confirmation bias. You know, you're always going to be alert and aware for new pieces of information. And are you going to really scrutinize that information? Like so-and-so, like maybe you'll see an interview with so-and-so, former colonel in the U.S. military, et cetera, et cetera. And he's saying all the stuff about, about the, uh, you know, extraterrestrial hybridization program or something like that. And he's got, you know, some military insignia on and stuff. And, but are you going to actually research whether he really was a colonel? How, are you, how do you know? So there's whatever, <clears throat> or, you know, if you're <clears throat> investigating 9-11 and you're reading about traces of uh, thermite or whatever it's called found at the site or traces of um, deuterium or whatever, like, and okay, here's some evidence in here, but do you really, are you going to really scrutinize that evidence with a skeptical mind? Probably not you're probably going to organize the evidence and choose evidence and choose where you look based on something deeper, based on an orientation, based on a state of being that predisposes you to accept some evidence and not others. So the basic principle here, so, we are, okay, so two things. One is that a state of belief corresponds to a state of being. Mm -hmm. Secondly, Reality isn't what we think it is. We, 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 and this again goes back to a kind of a Newtonian Cartesian worldview 
that says that reality is an objective thing outside of ourselves. So either 9-11 was a conspiracy or it was something else. We think that reality is objective, but what if external facts are not what is the primary stuff of reality? What if stories or information are the primary stuff of reality? And that facts organize themselves around stories. So this is a, there's a huge potential of empowerment within this. And I just want to draw the thread between the inconvenient truth, if you like, of, of quantum mechanics, which we still haven't really integrated into a, a worldview of the uh, question mark around 9-11, for example. Again, it's kind of like it's too much for our narratives, for our belief systems to absorb. It's kind of easy just to say, well, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's okay. I'm sure it's all really okay. And equally, if you're into a particular conspiracy theory and you've, you're an, adher an adherent, similarly, it might be inconvenient to actually drop that and consider this question of what is the emerging story, of what is the emerging narrative. Right. And, and, and it means the most important question is not whether the conspiracy theory is true or not. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care. I don't care if 9-11 was an inside job or not because the deep conditions that have to change don't depend. Changing the deep conditions doesn't depend on exposing the conspirators. Mm -hmm. It depends on creating a, I would say, a psychic climate, mm -hmm. like an emotional, spiritual, psychological climate, a narrative climate uh, that supports a different kind of world. Mm. And that is no longer consistent with a world in which that kind of shit happens. Mm -hmm. When we succeed in spreading love, compassion, empathy, uh, the, the way of seeing and the story that some call interbeing, when we do that, then you'll find that if there are conspiracies, they will come to the surface. And, and revelations will happen, but it's because the climate has changed. There's no longer, this is already happening on, on some level with the whole um, uh, sex abuse and Hollywood stuff. Like mm -hmm. th that was a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. This, you know, they cons all of these powerful men conspired to protect each other and to keep mm -hmm. it under wraps. Mm -hmm. And that was possible when the culture was to some extent complicit with it, complicit in their beliefs, their attitudes about women and, and men and stuff, um, and complicit in their belief about, about power. And those beliefs have changed enough that the conspiracy no longer has the, uh, the soil in which to flourish. So that, so, so that's what I'm interested in is how do we change the soil? And, and what does that look like? Yeah. Right. What a great question. And it seems there's a connection between the, the, the sort of the being, the change, the, the microcosm and the macrocosm, because in an individual's transformation, uh, let's say we, we focus just on truth or awareness, say through meditative practice, a lot of the, the shit, the shadow will naturally by itself come into awareness. And through the presencing and through the awarenessing will will change and transform. Similarly, it seems that as we uh, 
change the dominant cultural narratives. This is, if I'm hearing you correctly, we might anticipate that this is the this is the changing of the soil. It's to be in the exploration and articulation of what a new narrative of humanity is, what a new story is, what a new um, meaning making of what the human is and what reality is. Yeah. And it seems as a transition point, which maybe is where the resistance is to a lot of this, which is the, the being in not knowing or being in that. I think you've spoken about the gap between stories or the space between yeah. stories, which requires right. a, a, a state of being we're not generally well accustomed to. That's right. Yeah, it's an initiation. We're, we're going through an, an initiation. And the old world or the old reality falls apart. The old self falls apart. We realize that everything we thought was real was just a setup or just a story or just an illusion or just a certain way of doing things. But it wasn't real. And who I am in that story, that was conditional too. That's not mm -hmm. who I really am. And, so and there's a breakdown. Yeah. And to add a lightness to the breakdown, because obviously this often brings up fear and, and great resistance, both individually and collectively. There's also that perspective that the, uh, you know, for example, seeing the conditioned nature of the self uh, is, is getting the joke in a sense. So it's seeing the sort of cosmic joke that the setup was to create this identity, to have this, um, create a huge story, uh, the sort of narcissism of our, of our times around this me, and then to see that the uh, construction was just that. It's actually a construction that has no truth independent of itself or in itself rather. And so I wonder if there's something to say about this, the value of bringing humor, of bringing a lightness into very, very serious stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that humor can sometimes suggest that after all, this is just a story. And it's not necessarily to make light of it in the, in the sense of, of not fully having the experience that the story is meant to give to us. Mm -hmm. But it's meant to say, there's something more than this. There's one other thing I was going to say, humor. Yeah. It is a signal that there's something beyond the story too. Yeah. And there's a piece that was coming to me around the, some evolutionary biology suggests that laughter, its function is a, instantaneous powerful way of communicating that everything's okay mm -hmm. you know so maybe there's that tension of the animal attack say and then this laughter happens to allow everyone just to you know to to, to take be moved out of that stress position so yeah absolutely not a not a bypassing not a uh, not a denying of the the pain that comes up personally or, or the, the 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 reality of the significance of the scale of the challenges that we're collectively facing and where things could go but to bring in that deeper recognition uh, of that all is wellness you know this yeah. is a a powerful vibration to use that word a powerful vibration to, to bring into the world the one of uh -huh. peace also sometimes 
I mean, humor is another way to, you can signal solidarity with people through humor uh, and signal just kind of a friendliness. And another way to look at it that's a bit more esoteric would be that it's a breakthrough from the future in which the lessons of the current situation have been already integrated mm. into the present. Mm-hmm. So it's like a future perspective breaking through into the present, thereby reminding us that there is a future, that mm-hmm. there is hope, that there's like some light shining through the, the cracks in the eggshell that still contains us. Yeah. We, uh, my friends and I did a meditation earlier on, you've maybe done it before, where you take your consciousness out of yourself and out of the room and out of the house and out of the uh, community, out of the city, out of the planet, into, into space, just to really take this cosmic, you could say, perspective. And we can do the same with, with time, you know, to travel in great distances of time, to be looking back at now from 5,000 years in the future or whatever it might be. And this, of course, is a very true uh, perspective, partial that they are, to see this circumstance now from these bigger, expanded perspectives. And it seems to be a fairly consistent outcome from those inquiries that we take what's happening now a lot less seriously. You know, there's a, a deep truth in holding it lightly. Because, of course, we've seen the, the narrative unfold. We've seen... Yeah, who knows? We've seen the, the collapse of Earth and, and the rebirth of Earth. Or yeah. we, we, we've seen what's happened. And somehow that taking it lightly also has to fully incorporate the you know, Syrian kid washing up on the beach, you know, or the, mm. the hundreds of thousands of children in this country who go hungry, who don't have enough food, who are subsisting on soda pop and white bread, who are locked up in the mental health system or the juvenile so-called justice system who never have kids in LA who have never been to the beach, who have never seen the stars. Uh, like the, all of that has to, has to somehow fit in to the not taking it so seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's an extraordinary paradox, an extraordinary tension in a way. The, environmental aspect of course like each day there's more the the the, the plastic situation like just to touch on that as the, the the scale of the problem the amount of plastic that's in the oceans that's still being produced and still being pumped out just out in the river here we had a flood and it's like the amount of polystyrene and plastic bottles some of which who knows were ones that i used you know so certainly i'm complicit of course and how to marry the two like a a deep clarity and recognition of the scale of the the suffering the dysfunction and yet bring a new way of being bring a a new view and it seems that the all is wellness is um a revolutionary or an evolutionary uh way of being with vast problem and crises. Yeah. I, I don't think that all is well or it's all good is usually a very useful spiritual teaching. Mm-hmm. I think it corresponds to a certain state of being that is a valid and potent state of being. But to say that 
just to try to use it um, for comfort or to um, it can really be, it can really be a, a, a spiritual bypass, you know, mm-hmm. a bypass of feeling the fullness of the experience that we've chosen or that has been given to us to experience for the sake of our evolution. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think, for example, I don't think that, that this country is going to heal the legacy wounds, legacy traumas of uh, slavery, racism, genocide, and so forth, unless the stories come to the surface and can really be felt mm-hmm. and grieved. Now, I think that the, the, a lot of the activists are using counterproductive strategies to make that happen. Because when you generate guilt and shame, people then become defensive and they willfully do not feel, do not see, and deny what happened. Like that's, that's counterproductive. You have to have it come in. You have to find a way to make people feel safe, to feel it, to see it. And that often requires, on the activist's part, uh, a sacrifice. Sacrifice of being dominant in a political situation, dominant in a small group of people, uh, and also a sacrifice of revenge. These are the offerings that have to be made to the, at the altar to really have healing. Otherwise, you end up with you end up just reenacting it with different people in different roles, but the trauma will be replayed again and again and again, unless at some point somebody decides to let go of the benefits they can have by turning the uh, oppression onto somebody else. So yeah, just saying, On a deeper level, there is an all is wellness to like, yeah, we can feel all this pain. It'll be okay. We can see this truth. It'll be okay. We can trust our feelings. We can trust the process of the um, revelation of the truth. And we can sit with that. We can be with that. And when we take that in, we'll know what to do. We'll know how to act from compassion. Like acting from compassion can't happen unless there's first compassion, <laughs> unless there's first a situation where you can feel what it's like to be the other. Mm-hmm. Like to really feel what is it like to be a kid growing up in the ghetto with no employment prospects except for the drug trade? And like, what is it like? I mean, what is it like to be a white supremacist? Like, what happened to that guy? And what's it like to be to honor the land I'm sitting on here and of the Wurundjeri people in Australia, what's it like to be an indigenous Australian? I recall, and to to, to speak to a sort of uh, an intersection point, I recall an Aboriginal guy approaching me many years ago in Sydney and from great evident suffering and pain saying the desire, expressing the desire for sorry to be said. And as he languished it, it just one fucking word, just one fucking word, mate. And this, I, it was one of those events that was seared on my consciousness. And then a few years later, Philip Rudd did say sorry. And there was a moment that was, for me, it was one of those spine tingling moments where 
collectively there was something it feels happened in that acknowledgement in that recognition in that small word that was far more than just the word um, and yeah it just feels so powerful to, to 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 speak to the role of of feeling and acknowledgement and what i'm hearing you say is around the the the, the deep listening and acting from the listening from the not knowing from the um from the spaciousness rather than from more familiar modes of being yeah i think that's accurate can you say more um, you've this is a bit of a theme that's been alive for you from what i've been listening to from you recently around the idea of or the the Maybe we've said it, but I'm interested to hear more around this idea of the, the power of empathy or the power of putting ourselves into the place of the other, yeah. whether it be the, we gave a few sort of examples there. Yeah, it's related to the conspiracy theme, actually, because the, the problem-solving strategy that is most familiar to us in this culture is the fight. So you see it in divorcing couples. You see it in uh, on online, uh, you know, um, comments sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it in the fight against climate change, the war on drugs, the war on terror, et cetera, et cetera. Like you see a problem, and, and it's also implicit in medicine. In fact, not always implicit; it's explicit sometimes too. Yeah, the, the war, war metaphors, cancer. the war on cancer. Yeah, yeah. the the armor, the the. Uh, arsenal of modern medicine in the fight against disease, right? Mm-hmm. It's all a fight. Mm-hmm. So when we see people as, when we see the, the source of the problem as an enemy, a bad person, like some evil conspirators, for example, or mm-hmm. evil corporate executives or evil politicians or evil greedy, doesn't have to be the word evil, it could be the word greedy, uh, crazy, ignorant, um, selfish, mm-hmm. then, and that person's just bad, right? Those are all synonyms for bad. Mm-hmm. So the only way to make things better then is to defeat that person or those people or that power so that good beats bad, good wins out over bad, and the source of the problem, which is bad people, is eliminated. The source of the low crop yields, which is weeds or insects, those are dead. The source of crime, criminals, they're locked up. The source of terror, terrorists, we've droned them and bombed them. Problem solved. That's, a, that's the familiar way of thinking. It's even in the movies. The problem is a bad guy. The bad guy is just evil, irredeemably evil. You're not going to negotiate with him. He's going to take advantage of you, of you no matter what, right? The solution is to kill him. In real life, though, Basically, you get both sides or all sides seeing the other side as some version of bad. So I've been writing on climate change, writing, I'm writing a book, and both sides, all sides, say that the other side doesn't believe as I do because they are <clears throat> morally or intellectually deficient. They're, they're ignorant, they're irrational, they're corrupt. 
neither side really understands where the other side is coming from or what it's like to be the other side. When we step into empathy, that's really the question, what is it like to be you? Then, and we're not dehumanizing you as a bad guy, a criminal, a terrorist, a crazed fundamentalist, but actually, what is it like to be you? Let me be curious here. When we do that, then responses become available that are alternatives to fighting. Maybe sometimes you still have to fight, but it won't be because you automatically see the problem as a bad guy. It's because you've understood the situation and you realize that fighting isn't gonna work. So if there's a white supremacist march through the streets, fighting would be to go out there and shout them down, expose them. Um, but what if another response might be to totally ignore them or to laugh at them? That might actually be a lot more effective. What comes to mind is uh, much of the uh, sacred activism of the Indian independence movement and people um, choosing to face the, the, the violence and give their own lives, give uh, a willingness to, to endure the pain. Um, or at least that's how it is in the movie. I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't yeah. there. And uh, the, 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 the power of that to be in, not to be in opposition to what is and the way that that changes things to not be in opposition to actually yield to things as they are there's something, there's something yeah it wouldn't be to yield to things as they are it would be to stand strong in things as they should be <laughs> which is to say the same thing a different way in a sense yeah. because in the in, in in the yielding there is an emergent aspect of of the of the being which is not to be in that resistance or this or the subtle violence or the othering that is fundamental to how we often engage with our own emotional experience with uh, with with people around us so it's it's a it's sounds contradictory but i'm wondering if there's actually a, a line there that's 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 integrated so as an example um to you know the indian independence movement there's a there's a big no there's a big clarity about what wants to emerge uh, collectively and there's an embodiment on an individual level it seems of uh, uh, a, a means by which that can be facilitated which is to, to be the, the the peace to be the the truth force if we might say now I don't really know that much about the Indian independence movement you know I kind of I've read some things on it. So I can't, I mean, there's like a lot of deep scholarship in mm -hmm. this area around nonviolent resistance and stuff like that. I, I don't really feel qualified to weigh in about that. But I am recalling a story someone told me recently. He um, was traveling around and was visiting indigenous areas where there's indigenous people who have been like totally dispossessed of everything. And they're essentially reduced to begging on the streets. And, and they just basically like tourists come and they pay them to be photographed. Like they pay the indigenous people to be photographed. It's just sickening, you know, it's like, what else can we take from you? How about 
the cachet of being indigenous and we'll take our picture with you and here we are with indigenous people it's like disgusting but the um the story he told me was that i can't remember the name of these people but when they were being dispossessed and like loggers or paramilitaries hired by the logging companies were coming in and and like literally like killing their families in front of their eyes you know and like running through the village and like they had these poison dart guns that they used for hunting but they didn't use them against the people coming to to drive them out and even to kill their families and when they were asked why they said well we just can't bear to inflict that harm because they understood like yeah at that moment it might save a family member but in the long run and in the long long run it would have been counterproductive they would have been contributing to a world in which that kind of thing happens probably even on a strategic level they would have you know inflicted some damage that would have become the pretext for even more ruthless exterminations so even on a strategic level they might be right but on a deeper level it's a question of how do we see the world and how do our actions reinforce that world view or usher in a different world view like what are you really saying about the world when you enter a situation in terms of defeating killing humiliating destroying the opponent like what is the world view that suggests that this is the correct thing to do it's perhaps a world view that's aligned with the old world mm -hmm. not the world that we want to live in and that example you gave that's an incredibly illustrative story and for me it asks the question how do how are they seeing the world what's their world view that would allow what would seem an extraordinary response from a western conditioned perspective most people would find that idea of witnessing such horror and brutality against family members and to choose not to revenge or, 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 or attack as part of that. And I'm sensing there's a, there's a, there's a holistic view that would have yeah. to be accessible to see how that actually is not going to be helpful. That that's yeah. not the progressive step. Yeah. And I, I'm not really sure what their worldview was, but what I do know, so, Yeah, and I can't say if I were in that situation, I don't know, I might resort to violence. And, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong to resort to violence to mm -hmm. protect your loved ones. It is a slippery slope. Nations always use the pretext of self-defense when they engage in aggression. They just kind of draw out the chain of causality. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'll just say it's a slippery slope. And often, one of the operating principles that I've been applying is that the story that we hold about somebody is an invitation for that person to step into that story. So 
if I'm in a situation where maybe there's a person acting dangerously, if I can stay in the story of this person doesn't really want to hurt anybody, this person doesn't really want to be a criminal or a victimizer, like I haven't, or have I? I don't think I've been in, in, in any like really dramatic situations of, like this, but I know people who have. Like a guy was, was uh, I can't remember if he missed his bus or whatever, but he had to walk home through a really dangerous neighborhood in Brazil. He was Brazilian. And so he's walking and basically a stick up guy comes and, you know, sticks a gun on his head and tells him to give him his wallet. So he's like, yeah, sure. He's down my wallet. It's like, how's your day been anyway? And the guy's like, guy's like, it's been a terrible day robbing. Haven't gotten anything. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm sorry. There's not really much in my wallet either. I had a bad day too. You know, I was in the office, the boss yelled at me and now I'm getting robbed, you know? And the guy's like, yeah, I've had a terrible day robbing too. And they like start talking, you know, and eventually the guy's like, here, you can have your wallet back. You know, I'm just going to call the day a wash. And then he escorts him through the neighborhood so that no one else robs him on the way. And, and so what happened was, you know, here's someone comes and sticks a gun and gun at him. And instead of, believing that this is, you know, some vicious subhuman doing this, the guy is like, it's like, how was your day? You know, like seeing him as a person who doesn't really want to be robbing people, seeing him as a person who has bad days and good days. So it, under those circumstances, to be able to stand in that, it creates an invitation for that person to be who you see them as. On a more general scale, the way that we interact with people and with society, with, uh, with, with the tax collector, with I mean, anybody, every situation that we have, and also with the world in general through our political actions, through our writing, through our, our social media, I mean, everything that we put out there is based on a view of the world, a story about the world. If we put everything out there with the story of the world could be much better. People are just wanting to act from empathy. People are wanting to, to transcend the system that we're in today. People are want, like just, if everything you put out there is from that place, you are essentially inviting the world to, to conform to the place that you are speaking from. And this is not about fantasy. It's not about pretending the world is something that it isn't. This approach has to come from a true vision of what's possible. Like that guy in Brazil, he had to be able to look at that person and actually see the humanity in that, in that guy. It's not a tactic, you know? It's not a, a trick or a device. It, it has to be based on something that you see for real. Otherwise, the invitation has no power. So for me, it's important, even as I am well aware of the horrors that are unfolding today on this earth, I'm, I also make sure to keep abreast, to, to keep some kind of contact with the beauty of humanity and the, the signs of what's possible. Because 
when I'm in contact with those things, then I'm able to speak a powerful invitation to the world to move toward the beauty that I've seen. It's a, a function of Love and Truth Party. One of our visions, if you like, is to shine the light on that very uh, grassroots revolution that's been going on for timelessly. There's a wonderful book called Blessed Unrest by Paul Hawken, you're likely familiar with, in which really he just shines a light on the two or three million pre-existing grassroots organizations that are in the process of changing the world that, that you don't see on, on the news. And to take that choice as to which narrative, what, what story we're telling about what's really happening now on planet Earth. So yes, the horror, yes, the crisis, yes to all of it. But the dominant narrative, what's the, what's the ultimate, what do, what's, what, what do we, what's the deepest truth that we can possibly see? And to connect that with what we were speaking about earlier, moving from a Newtonian view to an emergent, uh, quantum view where the world is um, uh, coming into being constantly, being reborn constantly from a deep place of nothingness, <laughs> of, of infinite possibility, to really honor our creativity as aspects of that consciousness, of that creative process. So it seems key that we're in this inquiry and questioning of like what is our story and what is my behavior now or actions now uh, what story what unseen assumptions and so on is it built on mm -hmm. as you were saying am i reinforcing an, an old story or am i embodying being a, a something evolved something beyond where we're currently at and and it's also there's also the question of why do people gravitate toward one story or another, or why do you gravitate toward one story or another? And on one day, a story of a cynical story of despair and people yeah, right. are horrible seems so true. Yes. <laughs> and and any, anything else just seems like a delusion. Mm -hmm. And then on another day, you might just be seeing beauty in everybody, mm -hmm. and feeling so much hope for the world. Now, what's happening there? Is it that one day you are dumb and the next day you're smart? One day you are, you are silly and the next day realistic or whatever? No, it's that, that the story that appeals to you is part of something bigger that includes an emotional state, includes the, the totality of the experiences that you've had in your life and, and, and the process, the evolutionary process that you're going through like the, in a way, the story is almost, you could look at it as a diagnosis of a state of being and not necessarily as the deepest cause. Mm -hmm. Although it really it is a cause and a symptom mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. But that might be like, yeah, what, what, what? So you might even come to what, what do I need to be nourished enough to hold a more beautiful story? What am I not receiving right now? There's, there's something exquisite in, in, in that recognition of being both cause and effect, to, to hold those two simultaneously. So the degree of how I'm feeling now is a, an effect of <laughs> the history of humanity, 
as well as the day that I've had and the choices that I've made. Mm-hmm. And there's a power now to be at cause, which may be to lie down and do nothing, to take a nap or to have a massage or to walk in nature or join a movement or whatever it might be. But that seems to be one of the very fundamental pieces of old story, new story, we could say, is to actually hold the paradox that we're both cause and effect. The Love and Truth Party, as an example, is uh, perhaps cause of something, certainly effect of all that has gone before, and somehow both. So I wonder if you can say something about this holding of paradox, because a lot of what we're talking about, things seem to be contradictory, uh, particularly around this idea of cause and effect being the two simultaneously. Paradoxes are a symptom of a worldview that is going to change soon. Things come up that just don't make sense. And, and you're like, I don't understand it. Sometimes paradoxes are a product of the language that we use or the conceptual language that we think in. Mm-hmm. And they can only be resolved when the situation is seen through an entirely different lens, a different conceptual structure. So when paradoxes begin to multiply, you know that the days are numbered of the story of self and the story of the world that you've been living in. And they invite surrender. The first that, you know, like I can't make sense of it. So then I surrender. I I don't know. It's entering a place of not knowing. And that is the emptiness from which growth happens, from which a new way of seeing is born. That feels like a a great point of conclusion would be the the wrong word, but to um, crescendo around this notion of the the not knowing. And as embodied in my not knowing how to end this webinar and podcast. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The the, the power of uh, of the surrender. Yes, which again is not an instruction. Mm-hmm. It's not the, okay, surrender is the formula. Yeah, right. The ego yeah. mind will take that and say, oh, okay, I just need to surrender and I'll get something. Right. That's fake <laughs> surrender. Then I'll really be in control. Yeah. When the time to surrender comes, you will surrender. Yeah. Your, your knees will buckle and you'll find yourself yeah. on the floor. Yeah. Charles, it's, uh, I could happily continue this conversation um, and I'm keen to keep us within the hour for our our listeners and viewers and aware of your time as well. Really grateful for you taking the time to um, top your uh, Super Soul Sunday experience with a a truth lover um, experience as well. And I'd like to uh, thank you for that and direct people to your website, your uh, extraordinarily generous with your offerings and writings and creations and at charleseisenstein.net people will find a whole heap of literary materials and videos and courses and all sorts of other uh, world-changing um, beautiful um, 
aspects of what you're bringing into the world. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for sharing with us today on, on the webinar. Yeah, thanks, Will. It's my pleasure. And just to, to wrap up, to say that uh, to our listeners, to our uh, viewers, if you have enjoyed the production and would like to support the creation of more similar programming and feel resonance with the call to be of service to an emergent human culture, then please join us. Uh, download Love Letters. We've got about 10 different languages currently on the website, loveandtruthparty.org. You can go through the happiness hacks. We're attempting to freely offer the basics of well-being and happiness to people uh, that might not otherwise access those sorts of tools and resources. Um, hand out love letters, hand out wake-up calls. I can say from personal experience, it's a, a wonderfully enjoyable thing to approach a stranger and point out that they're loved or offer them love. And um, all of that can be found on loveandtruthparty.org and also on our social media. Of course, we're on all the usual channels. And if you feel called to support us financially, then of course that's welcome as well on the website. Uh, you can make a contribution as an expression of your appreciation of today's webinar or indeed of the mission that we're attempting to fulfill and, and serve in the world. So th thank you everyone. And we'll see you on uh, future episodes of uh, the truth lover.